My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but find no rest. Yet, you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. And you, our ancestors, trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were saved. And in you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not human. Scorned by others and despised by the people. All who see me mock at me. They make mouths at me and they shake their heads. Commit your calls to the Lord. Let him deliver. Let him rescue the one in whom he delights. Yet it was you who took me from the womb. You who kept me safe on my mother's breast. On you I was cast from my birth. And since my mother bore me, you have been my God. So do not be far from me. For trouble is near and there is no one to help. Many bulls encircle me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water. And all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax and it's melted within my chest. My mouth is dried up like pot sherds and my tongue, it sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs all around me, a company of evildoers encircle me. My hands and my feet have shriveled. I can count all of my bones. They stare and they gloat over me. They divide my clothes among themselves and for my clothing They cast lots. But you, O Lord, don't be far from me. O my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. For the horns of the wild oxen, you have rescued me from these. So I will tell of your name to my brothers and sisters. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. Stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he did not despise or abhor the affliction of the afflicted. He did not hide his face from me, but heard when I cried to him. From you my praise comes in the great congregation. My vows I will pay before those who fear him. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nation shall worship before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nation. To him indeed shall all who sleep in the earth bow down. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust. And I shall live for him. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord and proclaim his deliverance to a people yet unborn, saying, he has done it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in prayer as we prepare? God, guide these words. Guide the ears that will hear them, that we would wrestle and struggle with your scriptures. Hold us in our pain as you held Christ. 
Amen. Well, Psalm 22 is not a fun one, folks. You heard it, right? You felt it? It's a long psalm. It's not a wonder that when Jesus decides to quote it on the cross, just quotes the beginning. It's a lot of words to say. This is not one of those texts, though, outside of Good Friday, maybe, where we hear this a lot in church, in worship. So this morning, we're going to sit just with this piece of text and what it might say to us. Now, this is one of those teachings, one of those sermons, where if you have found yourself in like a really blessed part of your life, everything is going swimmingly, and you have not seen like shadows for quite a long time, good for you, uh, but there is someone quite close to you, your left or your right, a row in front or behind you, that this is where they are living, this Psalm 22 posture. So you might pray right now, for those folks who are with us, for who these words might resonate in a different kind of way. I want to start out, though, with uh, some Leonard Cohen. I'm not going to play any for you uh, or sing it, although the song we're going to talk about is the song Hallelujah. Do you know the song Hallelujah? It's been covered like a billion times by a billion different people. Uh, who does not know Leonard Cohen's song Hallelujah? Or who thinks it's Rufus Wainwright's song? Right or like Jeff Buckley or somebody else, Leonard Cohen's version, who wrote the song. It's got all of the like gravitas and the pathos of the actual song. Uh, so it's this complicated piece of music, and it has sort of found itself in different parts of our culture for a long time. And because it says the word hallelujah so many times, uh, Christians, uh, religious people are, kind of, are like, this is maybe our song, but we don't exactly like the way. <laughs> That these words are constructed. In fact, as I was reading about all the different versions of Hallelujah, there was a lot of instances where people said, like, so close, I wish we could sing this in church, but we just can't. Because it's not exactly like good Christian theology. Uh, I mean, you know the words. Baby, I've been here before. I've seen this room and I've walked this floor. I used to live alone before I knew you. I've seen your flag on the marble arch, and love is not a victory march. It's a cold and it's a broken hallelujah. There's somehow where Cohen, in a way that only someone like Cohen could do, or maybe someone like Johnny Cash could do, can hold together these twin concepts of brokenness or suffering or pain and holiness and sacredness and spirituality. And that hallelujah somehow encompasses all of this. Now, we're in the Psalms, and the last psalm in the Psalter, which is a fun word for a collection of psalms, is Psalm 150. And Psalm 150 is just hallelujah over and over again, kind of like strewn all throughout creation. And what the psalmist is saying at the very end of the psalm book is that there is nowhere and there is no time or place or condition where hallelujah is not an appropriate refrain. That is what Leonard Cohen's song is saying in a very complicated sort of way. So we're going to lean into hallelujah with a sort of Cohen posture to our day. Y'all ready? I want to tell you about a time in my life and our family's life when God failed us. Some of you have heard this story if you've known us for any length of time and I asked Corey if I could share this story and uh, Judah's got a heads up because it has to do with him. Um, but 
When, oh, how old are you now, Judah? 11? 11 and some change. So about 11 years ago, uh, Judah was born. And we were young, and we had all of the feelings you have when you're getting ready to sort of say hello to your first child, which is just that feeling is terror, sheer terror all the time. It's crazy. And uh, when he was born, I remember because I was sort of like I was in the room. I was sort of like playing receiver and caught Judah. Not really. They don't let you like catch the baby. But was there for everything. And it was quite concerning for me because when Judah was born, he looked just like me as a baby. And it was this really strange emotion that washed over me to see myself born kind of thing. And we'd already picked out his name, but I was like, oh no, he looks just like me. We have to call him John Jay too. Uh, and so we're having like all of these emotions and Corey crushed it with, uh, you know, making a human. That's not a small thing. And in the kind of craziness of the moment, uh, they, you know, they take the, the child away and they take the kid to some other room where they like turn it from this sort of slimy, discolored to, to something that looks more like a baby that you see in pictures. And so we're waiting to have Judah come back into our room. And time doesn't make a lot of sense in these kind of situations, right? It's just sort of, it's all there, all compressed, and everything feels really heightened. And uh, a, a nurse came in, but she looked like a very important person who was about to deliver some very important news. And her tone had that tone you must practice whenever you take bedside manner 101 in medical school. And so we asked a question like, where is Judah? Uh, where's the baby? And they said, we had to take him to the NICU. And immediately you start to learn about all of these phrases you didn't know you were going to have to learn about. Like NICU, neonatal intensive care unit. Sounds intense. It's got the word intense in it. And turned out that his heart was beating like a hummingbird, like 300 beats a minute, which I hear is too fast. And uh, so we don't know what any of this means, like any of it. None of it makes sense. All we know is we look out the window and she says, like, he's about to go by the window. You can see him as he heads off, which is terrible. So off he goes. They said that they had brought his heartbeat down with a bag of ice on his face, but they had to take him in for some monitoring. Uh, so they took him in for a few days and, uh, he's like the healthiest, biggest kid in the NICU and, uh, they let him, let us go home with him three days later, which is good news. So we go home kind of like a little rattle, but thinking like, okay, this is what parenting is going to be like. Oh my goodness. How many days later was it, Corey? Three weeks later, uh, Corey was sitting in a chair with him and uh, like only a parent knows she's like something isn't right and so she calls uh, ahead and we go to the ER in our little town in North Louisiana um, if you can help it don't go to an ER in North Louisiana they are not prepared for you they were not prepared for us uh, his heart had jumped back up 300 beats a minute and they are trying like everything that they can do in the ER um, and at some point, like, I'm, like, crumpled in the hallway. And ER hallways are not the cleanest places to crumple. But I was crumpled in the hallway at the ER and sort of having all those emotions come back over me as we were, they're trying to bring his heart rate back down. And the ice didn't work this time. Finally, I don't know if you know this, Judah, they put, like, some kind of needle in your bone, in your shin, which seemed like it hurt because you cried a lot. 
And, uh, and they took him to another hospital that was further away and a lot better by helicopter. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't like to see my family whisked away in a medical helicopter. Uh, turns out he had something uh, that was called SVT, supraventricular tachycardia. So they sent us home with a diagnosis, and they sent us home with beta blockers, with medicine. He's going to have to be on these for quite a while. And they told us, they said, listen, he's got something going on with the circuits uh, in his heart. And so uh, normally, you know, like 70 or 80% of kids will outgrow this in a year. Just take this medicine, no big deal. It might make him a little sleepy, which I was like, great, because I'm very tired. And then in a year, we're going to test him again. And likely he'll outgrow it, right? The heart will grow together in the way it's supposed to, and it'll all be fine. And so for a year, we're, we're in this space. And all I know is that part that the psalmist says, which it felt like somehow trouble had moved into our life in a visceral sort of way, and God was starting to feel quite distant. Because things just weren't making sense anymore. It's like chaos was reigning. And so Corey and I took different approaches to this year. My approach to this fancy SVT world we were in was to fill the void with my ego to ask this question what does this suffering that our family is living through have to do with my sin because that's what i'd grown up with if something was going wrong then somehow god was teaching us a lesson or was sort of like visiting a consequence from something that i had not examined well enough have you ever had this feeling where you're suffering And you look for the reason, and you can't find one, so maybe the reason is you. It's a really weird form of ego. But I had it, and I started sort of cataloging out the last couple of years before Judah was born and thinking, what did I do wrong? Right? It's like that person who's born blind, and they take the person to Jesus, and they say, like, who sinned that this kid was born blind? Was it their parents, or was it their parents' parents? And Jesus said, like, that's not the way the story works. It's for the glory of God. So Corey takes the glory of God approach and says, okay, God, you got a year. You got a year to work this out. And in a year, I'm going to prepare to sort of like give all of this glory to you. When Judah, 80%, he's going to get better. When Judah gets better, 80% is like a pretty good percentage. We can probably say this to God, right? That was Corey's posture. I was talking to her about it yesterday. She was kind of re-explaining her heart posture. And she said it was a... It was like, um, sort of like a trust falls, right? Where she sort of says like, you got a year to catch me, God. I'm not going to do it. It's far. I know, right? And so we moved to North Carolina to go to grad school, to go to seminary. And right at that time, we have to go get the test done at Duke Hospital to check and see if he's outgrown it. And we're, Corey is sure he's outgrown it. And I'm sure that I'm a sinner and that's why he's sick, right? We're sure of all kind of crazy things at this point. And, uh... You know where this is going, right? He gets the test and the test comes back that he's still sick. For the last year, Corey and I had been talking to God in a very specific kind of way regarding this this trouble that had been visited upon our family. And a year in, when the story took a left turn again, Corey said it was like this curtain just made of steel closed down on whatever connection she had to God. I I feel like it's like someone cut the line. And even if you wanted to pick up the phone, 
there was no answer. So for three years, I went through grad school trying to understand God, while for three years, our family suffered the silence of God. It's a very strange season. I'm acutely aware that this is not a unique space to inhabit. That at some point, all of us, and right now, some of us, feel like this. You pick up the receiver and you call, you pick up. Why are you so far away from helping me? Why are you so silent? When I cry day and night, do you hear me? Do you see me? And at some point you're like, this thing isn't working and you just set it down and you walk away. Now, when I talk to folks who are, uh, like who are married and they, they say that they're having, you know, issues in their marriage and they, they tell these stories about how they're still in conversation, but it's a lot of kind of like antagonism and struggle. And I think, okay, they're still talking. But at the point in which they move into separate rooms and it goes cold, right? And you just sort of exist around each other. That kind of silence is deadly for a relationship. And so what does it mean when you can't hear the voice of God anymore? This is Psalm 22. For like nine months we were waiting. And we had this sense of what our life would be like. All of these hopes, all of these dreams, all of this future. And you get this bit of bad news. And you think just a year later... And then it'll be fine. And we'll just kind of wait, right? And everything's still, you're still sort of holding on to whatever image you had of a life that coheres, that holds together, that makes sense. But there comes a point in time when the thing, it doesn't make sense anymore, right? And you sort of look at what's left and you think... This isn't going to do. This isn't going to go back together. Whatever road I was on is completely washed out. This is what it felt like in our family for years. You know this feeling? Psalmist knows this feeling. All of my bones are out of joint. I could count them. There's a book I've been visiting again this week. Christian Wyman's My Bright Abyss. We had it on our connections desk for a while, but I want to read you a passage. Christian Wyman is a poet and a writer, and he wrote a series of essays on his own journey with a really painful, life-threatening cancer. And he writes... Like a psalmist. 
Though I have in my life experienced gout, bladder stones, a botched bone marrow biopsy, and various other screamable insults, until recently I had no idea what pain was. It islands you. You sit there in your little skeletal constriction of self, of disappearing self, watching everyone you love, however steadfastly they may remain by your side, drift further and further away. There is too much cancer packed into my bone marrow, which is inflamed and expanding, creating pressure outward on the bones. Bones don't like to stretch, the doctor says. Indeed, it's in my legs mostly, but also in one shoulder and in my face. It's a dull, devouring pain as if the earth were already but slowly eating me. And then the wrong move or simply a shift in breath, it's a lightning stripe of absolute feeling, an absolute ability infused in one flash. Mornings, I make my way out of bed very early and after taking all the pain medication I can take without dying, I sit on the couch and I try to make myself small by bending over and holding my ankles and I pray. Not to God though, who also seems to have abandoned this island, but to the pain that it ease up a little, that it let me breathe that it not but I know it will get worse that line pain islands you that is the danger of suffering the danger of the shadow lands of the valley of the wilderness Not just the suffering, but the way the suffering turns you into an island. It sort of isolates you from everyone. Talk to someone who's been living with like chronic pain or if you've been living with chronic pain. Sort of low-grade hum that exists in your body and then in your psyche and then your heart. Like you sort of feel other all the time. It's a problem. The oldest book in the Bible is likely the book of Job. And the book of Job is concerned with this question of why do we suffer? Why do the righteous suffer? At some point, we're going to preach for a while in the book of Job, but I'm going to give it to you just in like one couple of, just a couple of pictures. The book of Job is the story of Job's suffering, this intense suffering, and it exists in a really fascinating bit of literature genre. The book of Job is, po- is prose, right? So narrative, just a few chapters. That's the like folklore tale where God looks and says, have you seen my servant Job? And then the accuser comes and is like, I've seen Job, but, and they have this little argument, right? That's the, that's the narrative portion. And then Job starts to suffer and the, the book changes like just a few chapters in into poetry. And it is poetry for like 30-something chapters. 30-something chapters of poetry. And then you enter back into prose. That entire section of poetry is wrestling with that central question. And what happens in Job's suffering, what he spins out in his poetry, is this internal posture. So like this is what it looks like to sort of be... In the world in a normal, non-anxious, non-suffering kind of way. It's you and you look out and there's the rest of the world. I see you all, I see you all and you're seeing me right now. But pain, deep suffering, it does something to us. It does this to Job. Changes the vision. Just all you can see is yourself because you're like wrapped up in it you can just it's just taking over 
This is what Christian Wyman talks about with pain can island you. And so when Job asks for an answer to the question of why am I suffering? Why am I? Why am I? Why am I? God's answer is troubling because what God does is not answer the question of suffering, but lifts Job's head and says, can you see the rest of the world? Have you noticed the sky, the stars, the mountain, the ostrich? Have you noticed the rest of creation that is still humming along? When your vision is turned in, you can't see it. And when you're bent over, you don't notice anything but your own pain. And you've become an island. And God says, you are not so alone. That's the book of Job. Pain, it islands you. It isolates you. So this is the question. This is the question that the psalmist asks. And it's the question that Jesus asks, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far away from my groaning? Poetry has this power to take something that is incomprehensible, that is formless and void, and giving it shape and meaning. It's like taking all of the broken shards and containing them in a form that'll hold them. So that even as you are falling apart, you are still held. There is something about giving voice to our suffering that might make it possible for us to survive it. Poetry lays out the worst kind of story. My bones are out of joint. My heart is melting inside of me. And it contains it in a logical flow. It's like whenever you finally sit across from somebody and you say, this is where it hurts. There is power in saying, this is what is happening to me. This is what's happening to our family. This is what's happening inside of my body. It's a, it holds it. Robert Frost talking about poetry. He says that poetry can be a momentary stay of confusion, of chaos, of formlessness. That poetry can hold it, can, can contain it for just a moment. And the wisdom of the psalm is the wisdom of this little line of poetry. You lead this ache to speech. So why does Jesus pray this poem at the last? Matthew's gospel, Mark's gospel, they both record it. Jesus is on the cross. It's drawing to the end. And Jesus draws a breath and says, and the way the gospel is recorded is in the Aramaic, not in the Greek, 
but in this like sort of language of the village, language of the heart. Eli Eli Lama Sabakthani is the way that the New Testament renders it. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's all that Jesus says. But like a good Jew, when you quote a part, you mean the whole. It's like when you sort of sing one line of a song, it's the broken, and it's the holy, hallelujah, you know the whole piece. That's how Jesus is quoting this psalm. The whole thing is in view. Christian Wyman, a little bit later in his set of reflections, says why he's a Christian. And it has to do with the way that Jesus speaks at the time of death. He says, I'm a Christian not because of the resurrection. I wrestle with this, he says. And not because I think Christianity contains more truth than everything else in the world. And not simply because it was the religion in which I was raised. He says, this has actually been a high barrier. I'm a Christian because at that moment on the cross when Jesus, drinking the very dregs of human bitterness, cries out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I know, I know, he's quoting the Psalms. And who quotes a Psalm when being tortured? The words aren't exactly the point. The point is that he felt human destitution to its absolute degree. The point is that God is with us, not beyond us in suffering. I'm a Christian because I understand that moment of Christ's passion to have meaning in my own life. And what it means is that the absolutely solitary and singular nature of extreme human pain is an illusion. I'm not suggesting that ministering angels are going to come down and comfort you as you die. I'm suggesting that Christ's suffering shatters the iron walls around individual human suffering. That Christ's compassion makes extreme human compassion to the point of death possible. Let me say it again. I'm not suggesting that ministering angels are going to come down and comfort you as you die. What I'm suggesting, Wyman says, is that Christ's suffering, Christ's suffering shatters the iron walls around individual human suffering. That Christ's compassion makes extreme human compassion, even to the point of death possible. Human love can reach right into death then, but not if it is merely human love. What Jesus shows us is what the psalmist shows us, which is how to cry with a greater precision, how to aim our pain in a direction where it might find a resolution. So a story. Uh, in, do you know where I'm going to go next? The Exodus. Always the Exodus. In the Exodus, chapter 2. The people are oppressed. They are in slavery, and they are in bondage, and it hurts everywhere. It says the king of Egypt dies, and it says the people cry out. The Israelites groaned under their slavery, and they cried out. Out of the slavery they cry, it rose up to God. It does not say, by the way, that they cried out to God. It just says that they cried, that they screamed. This hurts really bad. That's it. In some direction. Hopefully somebody hears it. And it says 
that their cry rose up to God and God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God looked upon the Israelites and it says God knew. God yada. God understood and comprehended. And out of that cry and out of God's hearing and comprehension begins the story of deliverance. Which in some really profound way tells us that speaking, giving voice to the ache, might initiate the deliverance. That silence, being proper and pious, right? Keeping our hands folded and our hymn books open and our spine straight and not saying what it really feels like to be in this struggle... That might impoverish God's action in the story. They cry out, and God hears, God sees, God knows, and God responds. God comes down, it says, and rescues them and lifts them up. Now, a little bit later in the story, they've gotten to know this God a little bit, and things are still a little bit dicey, and so they're struggling again. And it says that they cry out to the Lord. They have learned... That this pain and this voice can find a direction. The psalmist's first words, Eli, Eli, my God, my God. Remember what you did before for me, God? Remember what you did for my ancestors, God? You have been with me for quite a while, God. It is this directional purpose to our pain. So here's the question. Where does it hurt? That part has been hurting. And for whatever conviction, you have kept it locked away. What is it about this life, in this world, in the state where we find it, where things just are not working out? Bones are out of joint. Relationships are shattered. There's broken glass all inside of you. Where does it hurt? That is the question of the cross. Jesus bears the answer in his own body. It says it hurts absolutely everywhere. That pain, that silence, that iron curtain that falls, that island that you're on, it will feel like hell. It will feel like dying a million little deaths before you ever breathe your last. That is what deep pain does. Talk to somebody who's in it. They will tell you this is not fun. In hell, if it is anything, it is the reality that we are far from home. That we are far from God. Far from rescue. And some of us... Maybe all of us at some point have absorbed the message that there are places that God cannot get to. Hell being the language we use for those places where God cannot reach. But here is 
The truth about what Jesus is about on the cross. Suffering is not always cured. That is cheap understanding. Suffering can, though, be redeemed. There is this uh, tradition that grows up around uh, what happens between the crucifixion and the resurrection, right? So Jesus dies on a Friday, and then we know where the story's going on a Sunday. Boom! Everything turns, right? And you have Easter, but there's this thing that happens in between. And tradition over time, reading the scriptures and reading the church fathers and mothers says that there's this thing that happens. It's called the, the harrowing of hell. Have you heard about the harrowing of hell? It's amazing. It's this idea that Jesus descends even into the realm of death and rescues and lifts out. That there is this space that we assumed was impervious to the divine that the divine has access to. If you feel like you're trapped behind a door that is locked from the outside, what you need is somebody with a key. In the book of Revelation, chapter 1, the writer says, I saw him and I fell at his feet as though I was dead, but he placed his right hand on me saying, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last the living one. I was dead, and see, I am alive forever and ever, and I have the keys to death and to hell. So friends and family, if you are in hell, you are not beyond reach. And if you have been in pain for so long that you have fallen silent, may you find voice to speak. May you follow the God who's given language even to our deepest suffering, even to our deepest fear. My God, my God, where are you? God is not found beyond suffering, but found in and through it. And like the book of Exodus said, God knows. God sees you and God knows you. And you are not nor ever alone. Would you pray with me? God, the assumption that I make all the time is that there is all kind of things that would separate me from you, that separate us from you. I confess, God, that it is what scares me. That there is some governing reality that is larger than you. It feels, it smells, it sounds like death. And it makes us tremble. So for all of us, God, here, who are in the throes of death, would you stay close? And as we find the bravery to speak truthfully about what it feels like to be in this world, would you hear us? Would you see us? And even if it's not always going to be okay, we just don't want to be by ourselves. We do not want to be alone. 
Give us your spirit. Give us your spirit through friends and family who can sit with us in pain. Give us your spirit in the cool breeze that will remind us that you have always been with us in our very breathing. Give us your spirit, God. Because if you are far away and trouble is near, we are in trouble. So be near. Amen. Mm-hmm.